0: Lopate at Large, I'm Lundit Lopate. Uh, thousands of diseases, mostly of genetic origin, have been classified as rare because they afflict only small numbers of people. Those patient groups were ignored for a long time by a pharmaceutical industry that saw them as too small to provide a return on the investment needed to develop an effective remedy. In his new book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, Jim Garrity, tells the story of the origins of the Orphan Drug Act and its impact nearly 40 years later. It's published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press and brings Jim Garrity, who has been a director or chair of seven NASDAQ-listed biotech companies over the years, to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Leonard. It's a pleasure to be with
0: you. Although major advances had been made over the years for the treatments of illnesses like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, hadn't thousands of less common diseases, mostly of genetic origin, each been classified as rare because they'd only been, they'd only afflicted small numbers? That's exactly right. So why are some of the illnesses, I mean, what are some of the illnesses that fall into that category and would I recognize their names?
1: You would, and your listeners would certainly recognize some of them, uh, particularly some of the more prevalent, uh, more common, and some of the ones that have been made famous by celebrities over the years. Uh, An early one, for example, uh, everybody in New York, of course, we all knew growing up in New York uh, about the Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, which today we all know is called ALS, or formerly called amyotropic lateral sclerosis. And ALS, of course, was also made famous by the Ice bucket challenge a few years ago, so mm-hmm. diseases like that get a lot of publicity. Uh, Jerry Lewis, if you go back again, people will remember back in the '50s and '60s Jerry Lewis's telethons raising money for muscular dystrophy Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, a very relatively common genetic disease, and most recently cystic fibrosis, one of the more common genetic diseases, made famous by people like uh, Boomer Esiason, the NFL quarterback, and his son Gunner. So often through those celebrity efforts and through the fact that some of these are relatively more common. People definitely know about some of them.
0: Some are named after obscure, long-dead discoverers, like the 19th century doctors Goucher, Fabry, and Duchamp.
1: That's right. That's right. Many of them were discovered in Europe, like those in the 19th century. And many of them, for a 100 years, uh, people thought there was no way to treat them. And they were, you know, they were ignored by the pharmaceutical industry, as you said. And it was really only with the advent of new technologies like, uh, you know, the technologies enabled by discoveries around genetics, you know, coming out of our learnings about the, the structure of DNA and about genetic engineering and the rise of biotechnology in the 1980s has really enabled a path toward treating a lot of those diseases.
0: Well, they've been called orphan diseases because they've been abandoned by the pharmaceutical industry for so long. When you consider all orphan diseases taken together, doesn't that affect a large portion of the population and become a public health issue?
1: That's exactly right, Leonard. And that's what's so little understood. You know, individually, these diseases are rare, but collectively, there have now been 7,000 genetic diseases identified, and individually, You know, some of them might only affect a thousand or a few hundred or a few thousand people, but collectively, they're estimated to afflict 30 million Americans, almost 10 percent of the population. And it's a little bit like like cancer was back, you know, a number of years ago. Nobody wanted to talk about it. It was kept out of the public eye. It was considered, you know, something people didn't want to talk about. And it was only when attention and publicity were brought to it, people realized how widespread it was and that we have the support that we have today for for developing therapies for it.
0: Well, they have really difficult to pronounce names, Uh, so we usually use initials, MPS for mucopolysaccharidosis, or uh, FH for familial hypercholesterolemia, and I'm not going to go on to the MLD (laughs) or the FSHD. Right.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. Of course... The great thing about this, Leonard, is, you know, we have a wonderful uh, scientific and medical community, incredibly inspired people, uh, dedicated to trying to understand these diseases and to try to bring therapies forward for them. For most people, uh, like the diseases you just mentioned, those acronyms, MLD, FSHD, people never hear about those unless it strikes one of their loved ones. Mm -hmm. But then when they do, what's remarkable about this community, this rare disease community, is you know, when it strikes a family, parents and children become so motivated to learn and to bring together these scientists and physicians. And that's what allows the, these therapies really to move forward.
0: Well, let's go back in time. What was the Kefauver-Harris Amendment to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that was passed in 1962 intended to address? And what cost came as a result?
1: Uh, that was an important milestone in the history of you know, the, the drug development and availability of drugs in America, those Kefauver-Harris amendments arose out of one of the great tragedies, you know, in American medicine. And many people will remember when a, when a disease that was given to pregnant women ended up causing uh, birth defects, thalidomide. Mm-hmm. And uh, out of that scandal and that tragedy, these amendments were passed, and they raised the bar dramatically for the FDA for the approval of new drugs, Much more rigorous testing, extensive testing, to prove safety and to prove efficacy, to prove the drugs worked, had to be put in place. And that made developing drugs much more expensive. And that was well-intentioned. But one of the unexpected consequences of those amendments were that because developing drugs became so expensive, pharma companies felt Mm -hmm. that they could only get a return on that investment by going after both very widespread diseases, very, very common diseases, number one, and number two, Going after them with low risk approaches. So, what the industry evolved toward in their search for blockbusters was very safe drugs. And they were, what that meant was taking a proven drug and making a little tweak to it. Like a classic example, many people take statins, right? And everybody knows that there have been many statins developed over the years um, for high cholesterol. And there were the first, second, third, fourth, fifth generation, you know, they were very small improvements. But they made a lot of money for the drug companies, so they found it much more profitable to do that than to take on these much more difficult diseases afflicting only a small number of patients.
0: Although, in some cases, a drug is developed to handle one thing and becomes a lot more valuable for other reasons, like Viagra.
1: Sure, that's a good example, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that happens in many cases, you know, a lot of drug development. There's an amazing amount of science that goes into it, an amazingly rigorous, you know, analytical research, but there's also a lot of, you know, serendipity and luck. And uh, sometimes, you know, a drug, when you're testing a drug and you're looking at treating one thing, you see that the drug has another effect and you think, well, that effect could maybe be useful in treating a different disease. So some of the great breakthroughs in drug development have come when, when scientists were trying to treat one disease and they saw that the drug had a different effect and that effect could be used. To treat a totally different condition. In
0: 1982, an informal coalition of supporters and families of parents with rare diseases who'd formed National Organization for Rare Diseases, NORD, and, and others, called for change to legislation to support development of drugs for treating rare diseases, uh, what we've, we've been calling orphan drugs. Did that lead to the passage of the Orphan Drug Act uh, in early 1983?
1: It did indeed. And in fact, that, it, that even came before the formal organization was founded when parents got together. And there was one mother, uh, a woman named Abby Myers, and Abby Myers, the book starts with the story of Abby Myers, when she had a child, a son, with a genetic disease that, you know, some many people have heard of maybe called Tourette's syndrome. And there was a drug that was effective in treating Tourette's syndrome. But the company that was, that was selling it was testing it for a much larger indication. treating millions of people, schizophrenia. And when it didn't work in that indication, they pulled it off the market because they felt they couldn't make money just serving this small population of Tourette's patients. And Abby Myers was so outraged by that that she felt something had to be done. And she got together with other parents of children with Tourette's syndrome, and they went to Washington. And then they got together with typically parents, often mothers, of patients with other diseases, Huntington's disease, and many other rare genetic conditions. And they went to Congress and they got a congressman, Henry Waxman, a very well-known congressman, the chairman of the House Health Committee, and they started holding hearings. And and there's a story, Leonard, that I think your listeners will enjoy. Uh, These patients and parents were very passionate. Henry Waxman was very committed, but nobody came to the hearings. And the pharma industry opposed the bill. And so the bill went nowhere. And it was only one a small article about the hearings and the fact that the hearings weren't getting any traction appeared in the L.A. Times, an actor who, again, you and many of your listeners, we all remember when we were kids, Jack Klugman, uh, had a television Mm -hmm. show called uh, Quincy M.E., Medical Uh Examiner. And Jack Klugman's show was produced by his brother, Maurice, who had a rare disease. And when they heard that, they thought they should do something. So they produced an episode of Quincy that focused on the need of patients and families with rare genetic diseases and the fact that Congress wasn't doing anything and Congress was flooded with letters 50,000 letters came in and that got so much attention Jack Klugman testified before Waxman's committee was on the front page of the New York Times and that's what led to the bill being passed.
0: Well let's get back to the story of Abby Myers and her husband Jerry and their son David uh Neither of them had a family history of genetic diseases or any reason to expect anything unusual when David was born in 1968. But when he was two, he started to show some odd symptoms like stuttering, rapid blinking, uncontrollable movements of his arms, legs, and head. Um, and pediatricians didn't say Tourette's. What did they tell him? Didn't they say that they were just ticks and that David would outgrow the whole – the condition?
1: They did, Leonard, and that's what happens to so many families – because these diseases are so little known, almost invariably, when the first symptoms arise, they're misdiagnosed. Like with Abby's son, doctors tell them, don't worry, tell parents, don't worry about it. They'll outgrow it. It's nothing. It's just a passing symptom. Or they misdiagnose it as some simple common ailment. And the need for improved diagnostics is so much, is so important. The need for newborn screening, which today uh, can be so helpful, but we need to get more diseases on those newborn screening panels to avoid all of this multi-year diagnostic odyssey. And, and David's and, and, disruptive, just to, David's just- to dis- add one last thing to your question, to, just to go back to the first part of your question, if I might, you know, your comment about Abby and, and Jerry not having any history of genetic diseases, mm-hmm. that goes to the heart of why I wrote the book. Because many people think that genetic diseases, you know, quote, run in families. And if they don't have a history of any diseases like that in their family, they don't need to care about this. But that is absolutely not the case. And tragically, these very devastating, often fatal, disabling diseases can strike at any birth of any child or any grandchild, niece or nephew. And it's really understanding that and understanding that the need for treatments for these diseases is important to all of us. That's one of the things I think it's most important for people to understand.
0: David's disruptive c- behaviors continue to worsen. He experienced repetitive muscle tics, uncontrollable head shaking, wildly flailing arms and legs, involuntary noises, hyperactivity, other behaviors that made life difficulty, uh, difficult in nursery school. His teacher wouldn't tolerate his behavior and he was given Haldol. But isn't that used for schizophrenia?
1: It is. And it's used for severe schizophrenia and it's a, it's a it's a serious tranquilizer and i think i quote in the in the book you know one of the other parents said it makes zombies out of people and it was so overpowering that uh, for david and for other children it it's so overcorrected that they couldn't function and they had to be taken off
0: my guest on today's leonard lopate at large here on wbai new york 99.5 fm streaming live at wbai.org is james a garrity his book inside the orphan drug revolution The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, published by uh, CSH Press. Um, Now, let's get back to the passage of the the act itself, Um, Henry Waxman. uh, uh, It passed the House of Representatives on December 14, 1982, then by voice vote in the Senate on December 17, Um, was there bipartisan support for the legislation when President Ronald Reagan signed the uh, Orphan Drug Act into law on January fourth, nineteen
1: eighty-three? There was bipartisan support, uh, but there was also a lot of opposition, particularly from some conservatives. And um, surprise, you know, surprise! I, I, I say in the I say in the book that the orphan drug revolution is a story of miracles, and the the you know, the Jack Klugman story is an example of one. But the story with Ronald Reagan is another one. Uh, the bill was passed at the very end in December of 1982, and Ronald Reagan was going off with his wife Nancy to their famous Christmas vacations in Palm Springs, California. And before he left on vacation, Reagan publicly announced that he was going to veto the bill. Hmm. And then he went on vacation, and when he was out in Palm Springs, again, in the way that families and mothers have been the, the drivers behind the orphan drug revolution, a number of mothers who were part of Nancy Reagan's social circle, met with her and talked to her. They took out, a, they took out an ad in the paper to bring to her attention that uh, that talked about the plight of these families and how heartless and cruel it would be to veto this bill. She talked to her husband, and the day he came back from vacation in Palm Springs on January 3rd, 1983, Reagan signed the bill into law.
0: Now, uh, you have been a strategy consultant, a biotechnology executive, and a venture entrepreneur, Were you already working in the field at that time?
1: I, you know, I say in the book, Leonard, that I stumbled into the orphan drug revolution. Uh, I started my career as a strategy consultant. I was working for a firm, many of your listeners will know, called Bain & Company. And I was consulting for a company that was at the beginning of the work on hemophilia. And uh, again, many of your listeners lived through this, you know, in the early 1980s and the late 1970s hemophilia therapy had reached an all-time, you know, high of success and these factors as they call them that people with hemophilia were being given were incredibly effective but they were sourced from donated blood from pooled plasma supplies and then of course in the early 1980s when the HIV crisis struck mm. HIV devastated the blood supply and as many listeners will remember the hemophilia community was devastated by AIDS because of the transmission of HIV through these products that they were being given to treat hemophilia. So all of a sudden, people with hemophilia whose life expectancies had risen you know, into the 60s in the late 1970s dropped back into the 40s and thousands of people with hemophilia and their family members to whom they transmitted the virus inadvertently died of AIDS. And that led to, that led to first of all, a whole new level of patient activism and patient outreach to the FDA and to industry to demand drugs, and access to drugs, but it also led to the development of new technologies, and it led people realize they had to get away. We had to get away from sourcing these products from pooled plasma, and just in those years, the early 1980s was the dawn of biotechnology. Genentech had just gone public, and a company called Genzyme had been founded with a focus on orphan drugs, and Genzyme was kind of the pioneer in developing many orphan drugs, but they all took advantage of this genetic engineering that allowed the production of much safer products for hemophilia and many other diseases. And thankfully, with the advent of those therapies, life expectancies and quality of life for for people with hemophilia is up to a level well beyond where it was before the onset of that HIV crisis.
0: In order to encourage the development of drugs for orphan diseases, didn't the ODA include seven-year market exclusivity and tax credits equal to half of the development cost, which was later changed to a 15-year carry-forward provision and a three-year carry-back that can be applied uh, in profitable year grants for drug development, fast-track approvals of drugs indicated for rare diseases and expanded. Uh, is, Is that because it was felt that it wasn't doing enough even though it was a success?
1: Well, no, you characterized the provisions exactly right there. And, you know, when, when patients, when Abby Myers and others first went to Washington, they tried to get a bill passed that would force the industry to produce drugs for these diseases. But obviously, the industry was violently opposed to that, and people realized that was not sustainable. You couldn't do that in a way that would actually be productive. So then the the thinking changed to providing incentives, and the incentives you described were all pro, all relevant, but it was really... The market exclusivity, because the markets are so small and the investment is so high and the development time and risk are so high, it was only if there was an opportunity to recoup the cost of investment after approval that companies and investors could see any return on these investments. So that, that period of market exclusivity was critical to to supporting the investment that was actually needed.
0: Seven-year market exclusivity. But well, uh, seven- that, that differs from traditional patent law, doesn't it?
1: It's, it's a kind of a supplement. It, it, it exists alongside patent law. And the reason is, in many cases, these drugs, it takes so long to develop these therapies and to discover how long they work that um, by the time they actually are approved and companies can begin selling them, the patents have either expired or are very close to expiration. So this provided some exclusivity, even if the patent had already expired.
0: Well, what happens if a competitor wishes to introduce a drug for the same indication uh, uh, does it have to prove that the drug is superior to get an okay?
1: During the period of market exclusivity, that's exactly right. A drug, Another drug can be approved to the same indication if, it ha- if it's superior, if it has some advantages, if it's safer, or if it's more effective.
0: In your book you ask why these drugs to treat often diseases cost so much in many cases approved hemophilia therapies can cost up to $600,000 per year for an adult in the U.S. and more than $20 million over the course of a lifetime? That's right. and that, what's That's incredible. About,
1: well, it, those are incredible numbers, Leonard, and most of us never deal with numbers like that in our lives. But I think a couple of things that are important to understand to put that in context. The first is for people with these diseases, if they're left untreated, you know, they live a lifetime of hospitalizations in and out of emergency rooms, long hospital stays, depending on the disease and the condition. People are often wheelchair bound. They're on ventilators. They require 24-hour care by a parent or caretaker who then also can't work. And so when you add up the lifetime cost of having these diseases, they're also in the millions of dollars. Um, and what, what, what people don't realize is no, no, no patient. Pays these prices for the drug. This is why we have insurance. This is the whole. This is the most important reason that people want to have health insurance. Is if a devastating condition strikes one of their loved ones, and what you know, what what Henry Tamir, when Genzyme was bringing out the first drug, first orphan drug in biotechnology for Gaucher disease, the the, the question he asked was, does society want these diseases treated. We have the ability to treat. them. If we want them treated. Then we need to understand that given how much they cost to develop, how many fail, and how few patients there are, if you do the math, if we if we want to provide an, a fair, not an excessive, but an adequate return to investors, this is what it costs to, prov- to, 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 to provide them. And then, you know, you look at the other side of the equation and you can ask, well, what about, you know, insurance costs? There are so few patients with these diseases mm. that despite all these orphan drugs that have been introduced – as other drugs become generic and go off patent, they, the cost of drugs as a percentage of healthcare spending has not gone up in the United States or elsewhere in the world.
0: Well, let's talk about the rest of the world. Uh, we've been discussing the development of these drugs in the United States, but I'm sure drugs are being developed elsewhere. And also, other countries want to use the drugs that are developed here. Is it a complicated process?
1: It's an extremely complicated process. Um, I mean, the science is extremely complex. The medical application is very, very complex. And the FDA and regulatory standards are very high. Uh, the, The quality of science and medicine is, you know, high in many countries around the world. But biotechnology and the development of orphan drugs has really been led in the United States. And it's been led largely because of the one the one part of the ecosystem, the one part of the team we haven't talked so much about are the entrepreneurs. And it was the entrepreneurs who really brought together the science and the medicine and the patients and the investors and took the risk to start the companies. And that entrepreneurial drive and the founding of those biotechnology companies has been much more extensive in the United States than any other country in the world.
0: So there, well, there are entrepreneurs all over the world, but, uh, I, it's just our system tends to encourage that sort of activity.
1: I think there are more entrepreneurs in the United States, really, in terms of people who are willing to you know, leave, you know, well-paying jobs and well-established companies than there are in most developed countries in the world. And there's also more risk capital. There are investors, more venture capital and high-risk investors who are willing to take a risk of investing in these early-stage technologies and these early-stage companies. And I think both of those are more available in the United States than any place else.
0: Didn't uh, one recent analysis find that only 11 percent of children with rare genetic diseases are accurately diagnosed at first?
1: Yeah, the diagnosis, Leonard, is an often you know ignored part of the equation, and um, it's getting better as people and physicians understand these diseases and more is known about them. But one thing that I mentioned earlier that is so important here, that your listeners, if there's one thing that I think people should care more about, it's newborn screening. And, you know, we have newborn screening in every state. But the question is, what diseases are screened for? And there's a very traditional, I would say, outdated mindset that says diseases shouldn't be added to a newborn screening panel. But the fact is, so many more diseases would benefit from having newborn screening while drugs are in development, that it's it's imperative that people understand and that the people who are managing the newborn screening panels understand how valuable it is to add these other diseases early.
0: So, uh, well, th- these rare diseases deserve our attention because they cause families a lot more human suffering than common diseases. But when... Uh, when does it become apparent that, we, that what we're seeing is a rare disease and not a common one?
1: Well, the, the diagnosis, these are often called you know, genetic diseases. And the most reliable test for them is typically having a genetic test done. When the genetic tests are done, they're highly reliable. And today, they're becoming more and more available. But, but many physicians who traditionally didn't you know, understand genetic testing or didn't have access to genetic testing, they would look at at a condition and they would would think about the most common condition they knew that was similar, and they would assume that this child must have that condition because that condition was so common. And so what's increasingly important is to get the genetic testing done early because, again, what's important about these diseases is they are relentlessly progressive. And from birth onward, you know, patients continue to get worse. And the earlier we diagnose them and the earlier we treat them, the more effective the therapy can be. Uh,
0: and uh, unlike many common diseases, few of these can be prevented or treated by good diet or, or exercise.
1: But that's exactly the point, Leonard, and that's why these are what people want insurance for, right? When we when we have insurance, we want it to prevent or to protect us and our loved ones against these tragic, uh, you know, occurrences. And, and indeed, when things can be prevented by diet and exercise, a lot of people would say, well, let's encourage wellness and let's encourage healthy lifestyles to prevent these diseases. But genetic diseases cannot be prevented this way. And that's why it's so important that the healthcare system understand that these are the kinds of things that, that families really want to have insurance available to cover.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with James A. Garrity. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, the Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology. Just go online to give to wbaiorg or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, wbai.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And and we thank you very much. And return now to Jim Garrity, whose book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of uh, uh, Patient-Centered Biotechnology, is published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press. He's been a director or chair of seven NASDAQ-listed biotech companies. He's worked on orphan drugs, For more than 40 years as a strategy consultant, a CEO, a leader of pioneering international operations at Genzyme, and uh, a venture entrepreneur. And he's a former trustee of Harvard Medical School's uh, Joslin Diabetes Center, Uh, spoken before both houses of Congress, the World Economic Forum, many other high-profile conferences. Uh, And... uh, Let's get back to this whole issue of, of the, the genetic aspect uh, of this. Now, um, uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, only 11% of children with rare genetic diseases are accurately diagnosed at first. Perhaps even more important, a rare genetic disease can someday, someday strike any family, and an orphan drug can... Uh, becomes uh, of, of the utmost importance to anyone with a child, a grandchild, niece, or nephew.
1: That's exactly right. You know, we all have genetic mutations, and we all have genetic mutations that code for different diseases. And it's all, you know, it's, uh, it's been called a genetic lottery. And, uh, you know, Is it the combination?
0: Be... For example, can I... Exactly. You can look at my genetic makeup and see, oh, everything is perfectly fine there, and then... I have a child with a woman who everybody says it's perfectly fine there, and yet something goes wrong?
1: Well, yeah, so there's, you know, you know, we all, people probably remember from when they studied biology, you know, we studied about Gregor Mendel and the Mendelian patterns of inheritance, and there were these different patterns of inheritance. You probably, people probably remember hearing about uh, dominant and recessive patterns of inheritance of diseases and diseases, genes, and diseases are inherited in different ways and sometimes it requires both parents to have a copy sometimes and that's a recessive condition sometimes in a dominant condition if only one parent has it that parent can pass it on is that called
0: monogenic
1: well all the all the diseases we're talking about are generally called monogenic Mm. which means it's a defect in just one gene Uh right many diseases have some genetic influence of a variety of different genes but yes these are called monogenic or that's another word for single gene diseases diseases in a single gene and when they're recessive then the two parents who are typically called carriers people probably heard that word you know people can be carriers for a disease but if it's recessive and they have two genes then the defect they won't suffer from the disease but if two people get together who are both carriers of the recessive gene then the child will have the disease or the child will have a chance of having the disease
0: well, uh, I'm assuming that in, in uh, many cases, these things run in families, but you're suggesting that that isn't always necessary. There can be no prior family history.
1: That's exactly right. That's, that's, that's actually more common. Uh, some of them are spontaneous mutations, but more common are recessive mutations that there's been no family history of anybody in that family having, again, you know, married and had a child with someone else who had that same genetic recessive defect or trait. And it's only when somebody with that recessive trait, you know, marries and has a child with somebody else who has the same recessive trait mm. that it's learned that they've been a carrier all along.
0: The word comes autosomal comes in here. What is that?
1: Autosomal is a way of describing where on the gene uh, the um, the defect is carried. There's, there's different... Places on the chromosome, and uh, they're described according to where on the genetic code the defect occurs.
0: So, so there are some autosomal dominant diseases like Huntington's and polycystic kidney diseases, um, but but they're not rare.
1: Well, no, they. I mean, they they are rare. Some are rarer than others, but um, those all fall within you know the Orphan Drug Act, as you talked about earlier. Uh, you know, the Orphan Drug Act sets the criteria in the United States for a so-called orphan disease. And in the United States, that was defined as a disease that strikes fewer than 200,000 people. Now, 200,000 people, you know, can sound like a lot. But if you talk about a country with 400 million people, that's one in every, that's only one in every 2,000 people, or put another way, Hmm. less than one-tenth of one percent of the population.
0: And then can I, since something like sickle cell also often has a racial component, can I suggest that that racism or racial attitudes may have played a role in the development of some treatments?
1: Well, sickle cell disease is a relatively unique uh, disease in this world of rare genetic diseases. It is, as you say, the most prevalent uh, disease among people of African descent. Uh, and it, it rarely strikes outside of African origin populations. And so because of the concentration of sickle cell disease, sickle cell disease was long ignored by, again, a pharmaceutical industry and a medical community uh, because patients with sickle cell disease often lived in and were part of underserved communities. Uh, and, of course, there was also a great skepticism and concern among you know, many people in that African American community of participating in medical research in the wake of some, you know, scandals and abuses that happened in earlier generations. Happily today, just recently in the last few years, there's been a rise in consciousness of the importance of sickle cell disease. There's been a rising investment in research and development. And happily in the last few years, there've been approvals of three drugs, the first three drugs in many, many years that have been approved to treat sickle cell disease.
0: Autosomal recessive diseases such as cystic fibrosis and sickle cell are transmitted through recessive or what are called mask genes. So they're sleeping killers.
1: Exactly. That's what we were talking about before with mm. the term of with the with the uh, concept of carriers. You know, they're sleeping in the sense that the parents are carriers of a trait for the disease, but they show no symptoms, and only when they have a child with someone who has that same recessive trait. The symptoms of the disease uh, appear in the child.
0: In some cases, the parents do have uh, symptoms, don't they? So we'd be more aware, more alert to the, the situation.
1: In dominant in diseases that are that are so-called autosomal dominant, in those diseases, parents typically will have symptoms. Uh, but even there, sometimes and Huntington's disease would be a good example. You know, the symptoms of the disease. Don't occur until later in life, and so at the time when parents are having a child, the parents might even be might not even be aware at that time that they have an autosomal dominant disease that's going to manifest when they become older.
0: What about mutations? Can perfectly normal people suddenly have a mutation somewhere during the course of their lives? They
1: can, and these these so-called spontaneous mutations. You know, they do occur, and patients can have a condition I sometimes called a de novo or, you know, brand-new genetic defect that occurred, you know, only in the birth of that child and uh, with no family history of any kind.
0: So this gets very complicated. Uh, and as we were saying at the beginning of the show, if I were a, a, a major drug manufacturer, I might not want to... Uh, put a lot of money into research into correcting something that's only going to affect hundreds or thousands of people. So how do you get past that?
1: Well, you know, maybe one story might help your listeners kind of understand, you know, how it developed. There was a, you mentioned Gaucher disease is one of these examples. And, you know, Gaucher disease was known for a long time It was discovered in the 19th century. And in the 1960s and 70s, there was a scientist at the NIH, Roscoe Brady, who was doing, who spent 30 years doing research on the disease. And he discovered the cause of the defect in, in a particular enzyme, an enzyme with another one of these long names, glucocerebrosidase. and that that enzyme was defective. And he could see that if you could give patients that enzyme, they could be, the disease could be treated. And he went to many companies, pharmaceutical companies around the world and tried to get interest in supporting this and in trying to develop a therapy for it. And nobody would. And then he had to, he had to get these placentas sourced. It was the, 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 the enzyme was extracted from human placentas and the company that was doing that was Genzyme Corporation. And when Henry Tamir became the president of Genzyme, he looked at that and he said, you know, this looks like it works. Hmm. And then Roscoe Brady did a trial. This was another one of the miracles Leonard in this, in this story, we did a trial with seven patients, and in six of the patients, the drug didn't work. And in one of the patients, it worked miraculously. You could see this was a, a three-year-old boy, and and one of the symptoms of this disease is a distended belly. It looks like you have a, a basketball in your stomach. Mm-hmm. And you could see when the boy was treated, his belly would, re, would rescind. And when, when they ran out of drug, it would expand again. And so it was obvious the drug was working, but people said, but the the drug didn't work because six out of the seven patients didn't show any benefit. And it turned out, like a lot of these complex diseases, they had to figure out what the right dose was of this enzyme. And it turned out they weren't using enough to treat the adults, who were obviously much larger, but they realized that was the right dose to treat this small boy. And when they adjusted the dose and did another trial with 10 patients, 12 patients, all 12 of them were treated successfully. And based on that, Genzyme developed the drug called Seridase and Serizyme for Gaucher disease, and that became a very successful drug available to patients all around the world, and that's what led biotech companies and pharma companies finally to realize that actually you could get a return on investing in these diseases, and, and that's really what triggered the orphan drug revolution among the biotech and pharma communities.
0: There's the whole matter of how genetic diseases are inherited. We carry two copies of any genes. Someone who has one mutated copy of a, gene's, a gene is a carrier. When both parents carry each carry a mutation, um, uh, symptoms well in in one of the two copies of of uh, for a recessive condition, neither shows symptoms of the disease, but each of their children has a twenty five percent chance of inheriting the disease and a fifty percent chance of becoming a carrier. The, the <laughs> That's
1: exactly right. This is really
0: complicated. It is
1: complicated, and it's you know. So, but but there's
0: no way if I fall in love with somebody and want to have a child with her, there's no way I could know that we have these complicated conditions and potential disasters along uh, along the way.
1: Well, there are some. There are some ways to do that, and people can have genetic testing done. And, you know, an an example, Leonard, of a case where that actually has been done, again, many of your listeners, I think, will know, is in the case of a disease called Tay-Sachs disease. Mm -hmm. And Tay-Sachs disease, many diseases have different levels of prevalence among different ethnic populations, you know, based on how, what they call founder effects, who first had them and how they passed down through the generations. And Tay-Sachs disease, as many of your listeners will know, was most prevalent by far among uh, Jewish populations. And what was, what was put in practice among many communities in the Jewish faith was genetic testing where prospective parents, prospective couples would undergo genetic testing. And if two parents were both carriers for Tay-Sachs disease, you know, they would be encouraged to have, to, to have other ways to have children or other ways to partner. And that brought the prevalence of Tay-Sachs disease down dramatically. But that can't be done. That can't be done with all diseases today. But that's an example of one where it could be done.
0: Mm-hmm. But if one of the parents is Jewish and the other parent isn't, it's less likely.
1: Yes, much less likely. Yes.
0: My guess is James A. Garrity. his book *Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution: The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology*, uh, and you are listening to. Let it lopate at large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. X-linked disorders like hemophilia, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and Rett syndrome are caused by genetic defects on the X chromosome, one of the two sex chromosomes. Because women have two X chromosomes, most mothers are usually disease-free carriers, aren't they?
1: Yes, exactly right.
0: So how does that work?
1: Well, again, a mother will not show symptoms of the disease, and then when the and, and will have no reason to expect that a child might have the disease. But then, when the child is born, uh, if the child has the defective copy of the of the gene, the child will manifest the disease. An example of that is a disease called Rett syndrome, mm-hmm. where again mothers can be perfectly healthy and have no <clears throat> excuse me have no prior history of the disease but the child can be born with a defective copy and, and be have a very severe condition.
0: And what is the father's contribution to all, to that? Nothing? Nothing
1: in the case of X-linked diseases because mm. the fathers don't carry the X chromosome. Uh,
0: what big breakthroughs and developments are on the immediate horizon?
1: Well, there are several. I think um, one that I think your listeners would be very interested to hear about are the advent of genetic therapies, you know, most of the therapies that have been introduced through this orphan drug revolution uh, as effective and as life changing as they've been patients and allow patients to live normal, healthy lives. uh, They require chronic administration. So patients have to go in often to a hospital every, let's say two weeks or so, two weeks to a month for an IV infusion that can take several hours for their, for their lives today. We're working on genetic therapies where instead of delivering the, the enzyme or the protein that has to be readministered every two or three weeks, you, we can administer the gene that can produce the protein inside the patient for a lifetime. Hmm. And so that same therapeutic, that curative benefit can be achieved in a one time administration through technologies called gene therapy or gene editing. And those hold tremendous progress, promise, but they also present great hurdles. In terms of regulatory challenges, reimbursement challenges, and as a result, the funding for those kinds of therapies, as we speak, is at an all-time low because investors, despite the promise of these therapies, don't see a way to get a return on investing in their development.
0: Can we detect uh, genetic defects on the X chromosome uh, in, in a potential mother? yes. So, but that test isn't done on a regular basis, is it? Uh,
1: Genetic testing is increasingly done. Um, Different kinds of genetic testing are done depending on the on the you know the perceived risk that a patient presents.
0: What has the orphan drug revolution taught us about ways to treat other more prevalent diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, even high cholesterol?
1: Yeah. It's teaching us a lot about those. And, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, FH, which is one of those complicated genetic diseases, familial hypercholesterolemia. Mm. That's a kind of a medical term for genetic high cholesterol and understanding how to treat the genetic form of high cholesterol is showing pathways that are allowing us to treat more common high cholesterol. Alzheimer's is an emerging field. And just as we talked about earlier, you know, people, I'm sure and Alzheimer's is the most prevalent disease today among older Americans, but I'm sure many people have heard about maybe experienced what's sometimes called early onset Alzheimer's, when a patient will come down with severe symptoms of Alzheimer's disease as early as their 40s or 50s. You know, the question is, what causes that? And the answer is, there are certain monogenic, certain single genetic defect forms of Alzheimer's disease that cause a very severe early onset condition. And today we're working on gene therapies and other therapies to treat those early onset Alzheimer's conditions. And the promise is that in learning how to treat those, that will open a door toward treating the much more widespread forms of Alzheimer's as well.
0: There are, have been many fights recently in Congress over uh, giving more money into uh, medical research and the like, uh, and uh, lowering drug costs. Uh, what, is, what is your feeling about the prognosis for the future?
1: Well, that point about lowering drug costs, that's one that I think it's really important for listeners to understand. You know, Well, been- I,
0: I lived in England for a while, and <laughs> yeah. I can tell you that uh, I felt a lot more secure when I got sick because I could go to a doctor uh, as a poor student and not have to worry about uh, eating up my lunch money for the next month.
1: You're exactly right, Leonard, and that goes to exactly the point, because the fact is the price of these drugs is exactly the same in the United States and England, to use your analogy. But what patients pay is very different. And in in places like Europe, with with national health systems, the cost of the drug is covered. The problem in the United States for patients is it's not the list price of the drug, because 95% of people in the United States have insurance, and the, the other 5%, they can get access through various patient assistant kinds of programs, but for the 95% of people who have insurance, the key is their insurance policies. And unlike the national health systems in England and other countries, you know, our insurance policies have very high and growing out of pocket costs for mm. patients and families. And those are called deductibles and copays. and the copays pays and deductibles have been rising dramatically and particularly for expensive drugs. And that's what makes it so unaffordable for patients. And so but but whereas capping the price to the drugs, the only thing that does is that cuts off investment because people say, well, if I can't get a return on my investment, I won't invest in new drugs. So what people who care about this really ought to focus on is the insurance reforms that ensure that insurance companies don't raise the pays and deductibles in such a way that the drugs are unaffordable to ordinary Americans.
0: You've been a board member of five biotech companies. Is there a role for Big Pharma in all of this, or is it destined to be left to the smaller biotech firms?
1: There's definitely a role for Big Pharma. Um, Big Pharma ignored this, these conditions and this need in the early days of the revolution, but they've come around as they've seen the success of these products, and they've understood the need for them. But in general, I would say, you know, big pharma companies have certain great strengths. And one of those strengths is they have big global field organizations. They have salespeople in countries all around the world. And so when a drug is approved and a company wants to get it to patients all around the world, the big pharma companies often have the most exp- most extensive, you know, commercial organizations. And they have a lot of money. They have a lot, in- a lot of money to pay for particularly the very expensive late-stage clinical trials. So very often what happens is the innovation starts in the biotech companies, which are very close to some of the most innovative academic thinkers, and they fund and conduct the early parts of the work, and then when a drug is successful, sometimes the biotech companies will develop and commercialize them, take them all the way, as we say, themselves, but often they will partner with pharmaceutical companies who will provide funding for other programs and take on the marketing of the approved drugs themselves.
0: We have very little time left, but I wanted to uh, point out that in the last section of your book, you explore what people who care can do to ensure that the orphan drug revolution remains vibrant today. What are some of the things that they can do?
1: Well, I think most important is to is to get informed. You know, I used the analogy to cancer earlier, and you know, years ago, before you know, Betty Ford talked about breast cancer and things. You know, cancer was considered something not to talk about and to ignore, and that's been the case. That was the case earlier for genetic diseases, but that's changing. And now with patient organizations becoming active, uh, people are, are embracing the opportunity here in a positive way. And so for ordinary people to understand that, to familiarize themselves, to do things like read this book and learn about these conditions and these therapies, and then to inform themselves so that either if someone in their family uh, you know, is affected by a condition, they know who to talk to, what doctors and hospitals. Uh-huh to go to, and they they inform themselves with regard to policy, so that whether it's newborn screening or drug prices, they're able to speak up for the things that are needed to allow the benefits of this revolution to continue.
0: James A. Garrity's book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, is published by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Press. It's been my great pleasure to have him on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. Check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Obviously, uh, recent developments indicate that we have all sorts of issues that we have to contend with, and uh, and they're... they're, they're very expensive. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbaiorg right now. That's give and the number 2 wbai.org or 212-209-2950 because we need your help to Keep bringing this unique in depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Located Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing inside the orphan drug revolution by James A. Garrity. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to wbai.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. And you can keep that going until you decide you don't want to keep it going anymore, $10, $15, $20, whatever. Either way, I hope you call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, why not let us uh, know that you appreciate what we Do give to WBAI.org, call 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Thank you so much for listening.